In today's social media-driven world, it's easy to follow someone online and think that they have it all together as a hunter. Unfortunately, our culture today has urged us to only post our successes online, which is very deceiving and can be discouraging for some, especially new hunters. My guest today, Mark Kenyon, has been someone that I've enjoyed following on social media for many years because he doesn't just post about his successes as a hunter, but also posts about the journey of growing and learning as a hunter. In today's podcast episode, we talk about many important hunting tips for new hunters, including tips for finding a place to hunt, Mark's system for getting hunting access on private land, the next steps you should take as a hunter once you get hunting access, what is shed hunting and why do hunters do it, Mark's best shed hunting tips and tactics, and early season deer scouting. Welcome to Activate the Hunt, helping you master the skill of hunting. If you're a new hunter who's just getting started, or you've been hunting for a while, but want to learn new tips, tactics, and information to help you become a better hunter, this podcast is for you. Get ready to Activate the Hunt. Welcome to Activate the Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Colin Cottrell. It's really good to be back at the mic. Unfortunately, as those of you who are who are subscribed already know, it's been over two years since I last posted uh, a podcast episode. But I've recently renewed my outlook and focus on Activate the Hunt as a value-driven organization. I'm excited to bring you new podcast episodes and interviews in the months ahead, as well as new features that will bring together a passionate community of new hunters and experienced hunters in an effort to help us all on our journey as hunters. Moving forward, if you want to stay involved with the upcoming new features and focus for Activate the Hunt, I urge you to follow along on Instagram, instagram.com slash activate the hunt, and join the email list at activatethehunt.com. You can also follow my personal Instagram account at instagram.com slash Colin underscore Cottrell. This week's podcast episode is with my hunting industry friend and colleague, Mark Kenyon. Over 10 years ago, we both started working in the hunting industry and instantly connected with our similar backgrounds in digital media, marketing, and hunting the Midwest. Most notably, Mark is the founder of the ever-popular deer hunting blog, wiredtohunt.com, and host of the industry-leading Wired to Hunt podcast. He is also a nationally published outdoor writer. Most recently, he has joined forces with Stephen Rinella's Meat Eater Inc. as their whitetail guy. It was a pleasure to have this conversation with Mark and have him share his wealth of deer hunting knowledge and information. I hope you enjoy it. I do appreciate you coming on to, to chat and uh, yeah, not a problem. Looking forward to this. So happy to do it. Means a lot, man. So you know, just bring us through. You know, I, I know the story a little bit of the story from reading your content over the years with Wired to Hunt. But you know, tell tell the viewers a little bit about kind of your upbringing and hunting and where you got started as a hunter. Yeah, so uh, I have a tendency to ramble, so you're going to have to tell me when to when to shut up or when to keep going. No, ra- ramble on, my friend. I'll try to give you the Cliff Notes version. Uh, you know, I grew up in a family that was um, all about the outdoors. At least my, my dad's side of the family over in West Michigan was all about hunting and fishing and getting outside. And so I grew up, you know, from a very young age, being around wildlife, going out there deer hunting. I think I was in the blind at two or three years old with my dad and, you know, got my first fishing pole, I'm sure at like one and a half or two. And so spent a lot of time doing that kind of stuff growing up. We had a little deer camp up in Northwestern Michigan where I kind of 
learn the ropes, everything from how, how to walk quietly through the woods to how to sit still for five hours at a time to, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, so was I, that primarily your dad who taught you that or your uncles or who, who was it primarily? My dad, my grandpa, um, my grandpa was, you know, the, the patriarch of the family and, and kind of the guy that ran the show up there. So he was, um, he was a huge, huge influence on me and my dad as well. So those two for sure. And then I had a couple uncles who I got to spend with some time with up there as well. Um, but definitely was a family thing. It was an interesting dynamic for whatever reason. Um, my grandpa was very, um, I don't want to say possessive of like our camp atmosphere for yep. whatever reason it was very family centric like it yeah, wasn't a yeah. place that friends went it was just like this is family yes and so you know it was uncles it was my dad it was my grandpa it was a couple of my cousins and it was just this kind of special little place that we came to and connected and um you know had a lot of really really great times and i learned the bare bones basics of hunting um but what i came to learn as i became a teenager and started kind of branching out a little bit is that there was a lot more to it. Um, my family w- loved to hunt, but they had like a very specific little way that did it kind of the, tr- the traditional Northern yeah. Michigan. Yeah. You go out there, you kind of, I mean, upper great lakes, right? You, you were up in the, that yep. same general region. Yep. And so yep. it's I was kinda, up Northern central Minnesota, the same exact kind of upbringing, you know, where we, we had our hunting camp and it was pretty much our family. We, there wasn't a lot of friends. It was kind of a fat family. Not that we didn't, want to bring friends it was just our family time and our family atmosphere so i totally understand yeah, yeah and, that, and that's awesome um but but we had you know it's the deal you, you kind of go out there and you sit on a log next to a tree and see what happens there wasn't a whole lot of like year-round work going on my, yep. my grandpa and dad they build like some some blinds in the woods um but it was pretty basic stuff we never worried about wind we never really thought about the kind of stuff we think about today so the first like 15 years of my hunting life were just like that kind of bare bones, traditional hunting, getting out there on opening weekend, having a good time, fishing, doing all those things. And then I took up bow hunting. My dad and I decided to learn how to bow hunt together when I was a teenager. Um, And that's when I started learning a little bit more. And for the first time I hunted somewhere other than our family deer camp. Um, But I just had a three acre woodlot behind my parents' home. And uh, so I bow hunted on this three acres behind my parents' Where was this at? In Western Michigan, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Okay. And, uh, and that's where I bow hunted for the first three or four years or whatever it was. Um, and you know, just kind of struggled along trying to figure things out. And it wasn't until I think I was 19 that I finally killed my first year. I was holding out for a buck. I wanted my first year to be a buck. Um, so up at our Northern Michigan deer camp, you almost never saw any deer at all. Like the deer yeah. numbers have gone down precipitously since like the eighties and early nineties. It was pretty good. Seventies, eighties, early nineties. But by the time I could actually hunt, it was like, you would see a deer for the whole trip. You were up there for five days. Um, <laughs> I think I saw in all of my years, uh, until like recent times, let's say from, from 1990, 1995 is probably when I could start. I can like point to seasons and remember stuff. Yep. So 95 till 2008. I can remember seeing three bucks total in that entire time period up there. And not one of them was bigger than like a four point. Um, so that's the kind of deer numbers we yeah. were dealing with there. So just not many opportunities to, to shoot anything. Totally. But when I started bow hunting down South, um, Western Michigan, which was South compared to our deer camp, I started seeing deer and had some opportunities. And like I said, finally got one when I was 19. And, um, from that point on, then I kind of 
really immersed myself and took kind of my own self-education to a different level over the last, I don't know, 15 years or so. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you, what, what are a couple of things that you really remember about deer camp? You know, a couple of things that really kind of stand out about that, maybe a memory with your grandpa or something like that. Oh gosh. I mean, I could talk for a full two hour podcast about that. Um, <laughs> so many, so many great memories up there, but there's certain little things, a little bit of the, the, the aesthetic or the aura of the place. Like when you mm-hmm. walked into our deer camp, you right away just felt like you're transported to, to almost a different time. Yes. And as, as a young kid, you know, as a six year old, you walk into the camp and I'm surrounded by the men. Right. It's yeah. all the adults and then me. And there's a wall full of deer racks and there, there's no electricity up there. There's no running water. So we just have like little uh, kerosene, propane lanterns yep. that are that are hissing in the, on the sides of the cabin. It's a one room cabin. So it's real small. And then there's another there's a door. that The whole door is just pictures from the last 40 years of, of deer camps and stuff. So it's just, you, you, it's like walking into a memory every single time. And so those, those sounds of the lanterns of the, of the lights going on and the crackling wood burning stove and my grandpa, you know, making coffee in the morning and Hey Mark, you ready for some coffee? And every time I was like, no GP, I just want hot chocolate <laughs> when I was a little guy. Um, yeah. you know, those, those memories of just being in camp as much as I'd love sitting in the woods up there when I go up there, even now more so back in the day, I was really gung ho about hunting. But now when I go up there, I'm obviously gung ho about hunting all yeah. throughout the rest of my season. But when I go to our camp, that's actually now my time to take a little bit of a breather. And yeah. now I just want, I want to sit in the, in the chair in the cabin and, and enjoy my cup of coffee and just look at all those antlers and all those pictures and um, reflect on those things. So that's kind of like my reflection time when I go up there now. Yeah. Um, There's awesome. just so many great moments. That's so cool, man. So, so you were 19 years old. You, you killed your first deer with a bow. Uh, so did you get pretty serious into hunting after that? Obviously, you know, this led to a point where you started a a blog website about deer hunting. So (laughs) there was some transition in there at some point. Yeah. Yeah. And it it might've been 18, somewhere around there. Um, but I'd always like loved hunting. I was always like really into it. Someone had said like, what do you do? It was always, I love deer hunting and I was really into bass fishing too. Did a lot of tournament bass fishing. Yep. in high school. Um, but as I mentioned, like just had horrible success rates <laughs> was not, was not killing deer. Um, so yeah, I killed my first deer. And then after that, it was like something, you know, stuff clicked. Yeah. A big part was just realizing that you don't need to hunt at your deer camp or on your three acres behind your house. Like there's yeah. other, as soon as I started hunting other places, then all of a sudden you realize there was a lot more opportunities, but yeah, over the, over the course of college, um, started branching out a little bit, definitely picked up some basics of deer hunting that I just never got from like my family. That just wasn't what they did, but things like paying attention to wind direction, paying attention mm-hmm. to, you know, food sources and bedding areas and access and exit, like some pretty foundational deer hunting, um, concepts. We just never, we never paid attention to up there. So once I got that, yeah. then all of a sudden I was like, Oh wow, it's, it's not that hard to kill a deer. Uh, <laughs> So, so yeah, over the next like three, four years started having some success killing like year and a half old bucks, two and a half year old bucks, that kind of thing. And, um, just had had always loved it. Always had this passion, had always spent a lot of the, a lot of time in the woods. So like you mentioned, um, one summer while on an internship in, uh, New York city, actually, I decided, you know, why not start a website about this thing I love so much and just talk about hunting. And, um, you know, at the time I was, working for an advertising agency that worked with bloggers and connected Mm -hmm. them with products. And I'm like, look at all these people that are writing stupid websites about shoes and stuff. And they're getting, 
all this free gear and they're getting paid for and like they're they're doing this for a living like that's crazy why couldn't i do that with hunting yeah um so i just started the website and just start kind of sharing my stories and sharing thoughts and going out there and finding information and and reposting on my website with my own spin and that was back in 2008 i guess and uh you know 11 years later here we are so really digging into like doing blogs and different things like that that's what really i mean obviously you had this passion before i mean you already had this passion but your passion for hunting led to a passion to start writing and really researching and and really learning even deeper about why you were having success or why you were killing deer how you could you know, obviously have that natural inclination to, uh, you know, have more success in the woods. So, uh, so was blogging, you know, and doing that research, did that really help you? Uh, help me to become a better hunter or yeah, build a business? Yeah, 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 both. Yeah. Uh, well, it, you know, it kind of went hand in hand. Um, it's funny taking one step back, how the idea came together actually would actually formulate the whole thing. I'm working this internship, like I mentioned, and I'm in Manhattan and I'm yep. just miserable because I can't get out and do the things I love to do. I just felt like I was so hemmed in by the concrete and buildings and, you know, 10 million people. And every day I'd walk, you know, to the subway and get in the subway and just be slammed into a corner. I'm just sitting there like, oh my gosh, I just want to be in the woods or I want to be anywhere but this. Um, so on my lunch breaks from work, I would go downstairs and go to the subway station and there was like a magazine stand. And I would always try to see if there's anything that I would like to read related to hunting and fishing. And so yeah. I remember one day I got down there and they had a field and stream and outdoor life. And then I've also really been in technology and marketing and everything. So I picked up a wired magazine. Yeah. And um, so I'm, I'm, I've got that and I go upstairs and I'm in my office and I'm looking at my magazines and all of my other coworkers thought it was really weird that I was into hunting and fishing and um, were really intrigued by that. But, uh, but finally I had this idea, you know what, I'm going to start this thing. And, and then because wired was something I was, you know, following already, I started thinking, man, wired to hunt, has got a good ring to it. Um, and, and so started, you know, started the website was kind of inspired by uh, combining those two things, hunting with technology and kind of, that's how I got this yeah. next generation spin for what I was trying to do with wired to hunt. So yeah, um, over the course of the next few years took my, professional background of advertising, marketing, and technology and digital media, and um, try to combine that with my love for hunting and then my you know love for trying to learn more about hunting. So I spent yeah. a whole lot of time in those early years um, you know, reading every single magazine, every single website, listening to every, there weren't really many podcasts back then, but no. um, watching every video I could. Um, I just really, really dove in 2000% into digesting as much possible information as I could about hunting and taking things to the next level. And at mm -hmm. the same time, kind of putting the same amount of effort into learning about digital media and how to build, you know, a property of your own, a website of your own yeah. and a brand. And so those two things kind of consumed my life from, you know, that probably that first like four years out of college um, while I was working my main full-time job, it was wake up at four in the morning, work for three hours on Wired Hunt first, then come home and, you know, get home. And I had no interest in doing anything at all other than like spending some time with my girlfriend. Other than that, it was nonstop working on Wired Hunt or hunting related things. I mean, that was just it. Yep. And, um, and that was, you know, that four-year period. That's cool. That's cool, man. Now, do you credit anybody in those early days to really mentoring you like on, on both sides, like as far as the business side, but then obviously this is a, you know, we want to talk about hunting. So who really kind of mentored you, you know, as, as you took that next step in your hunting career? 
You know, I don't know if there's any one person um, because I was kind of in the middle of nowhere. I didn't have any like close um, people actually physically to me that can mentor me. Mm-hmm. Um, so more of my mentors were, were people I read um, or people I watched videos from as far as hunting. Um, people like John Eberhardt, I read his books, probably the most influential book, like the book or the resource that changed like my way of thinking about hunting the most was a book called Precision Bow Hunting by John Eberhardt. Yep. I've read uh, it. It's a great book. Great book. And that really was like an aha moment for me. Like a whole lot of things that, that define how I hunt still today came from that book. Um, so that was a big one for me. Um, and, and then I think on the other side of things, as far as business, there wasn't, again, there wasn't any person I was actually around physically that helped me out a whole lot, but podcasts, um, and YouTube and stuff were really a huge influence on me when it came to the business side of things. People like, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk and Pat Flynn, Mm -hmm. um, were, were probably two of the most influential people as far as my understanding of social media and podcasts and digital media and, and doing all those things that led me to be able to make a career out of this. Um, those would be some of the people that probably had the greatest influence on me. That's cool, man just kind of stepping back into your first few years of hunting. Um, you know, what are, what are a few things that stick out that you wish you could kind of do differently or maybe you would focus more on? Oh man. So many things, you know, like I said, in those early years, the, the extent of our education that I got from my family, and this is not knocking my family at all. It's just <laughs> kind of just how it was back then. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, you knew you had to be quiet. You knew that you couldn't move around a bunch and you knew that, you know, if you saw rubs or scrapes, that was a good thing. And that was kind of it. So like we would walk around the woods and you'd look for a rub. And if you saw a rub, you'd sit down kind of close to it Mm -hmm. and you wouldn't move too much and you wouldn't make loud noises. That was about it. Um, there was no thought to, like I said, no thought to win, no thought to how deer actually use the train or where they're using things or why they're using things or, um, you know, spooking deer, pressuring deer, any kind of impacts that we probably were having tromping around the woods all the time. We never thought about it. And so that was probably a big part of the reason why we didn't see many deer. Yeah. So all that I wish I could have changed. Um, I mean, paying attention to the wind was, was a huge thing probably that I never did. And I'm, I can't imagine how many deer went downwind of me and (laughs) I'm hearing hearing a deer blowing at me. I'm like, I didn't move once. How did they know I'm here? (laughs) Um, so that's a big thing, but probably even more than that stuff. And I'm not sure if I would change this or not because, um, well, I'll just say what it is. What, yeah. what, I would, what I think would be part of me wishes I'd branched out as far as location. Cause like I mentioned in the beginning, yeah. so much at the first 15 years and then still even after that, the next three, four years, just either on our deer camp or this three acres. And that's mm-hmm. it. I never went anywhere else. Um, if I had, I would have seen, you know, my, my success rate would have been dramatically different simply because yeah. there's more deer. Um, and so I kind of wish I had maybe at 15 or maybe at 16, once I started driving, if I hadn't been, you know, I was, I guess more focused on girls and in high school <laughs> and stuff like that. Who can blame you though? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> as much as I loved hunting and fishing at that point, I guess I didn't love it as much as I should have. Cause I should have been out knocking on doors or trying to find yeah. some other place to hunt. Um, and I didn't expend that much energy at that point, which if I had, you know, I would have had a lot more opportunities, probably would have learned a lot of these things faster than if I hadn't waited till I was, you know, 17, 18, 19. Yeah, um, yeah. but on the other hand, I I'm glad I spent a lot of time in those places that I did because yeah, I wasn't seeing as many deer. I wasn't killing as many deer, but 
as I alluded to at the front end, it's those yeah. memories, it's those physical, not physical, those personal relationships that I developed with my family and, and then subsequently friends yeah. that, uh, that I look back on so fondly now. So, I, you know, it's all meant to be. Yeah. I love how you put that too, because you really, you look back and you reflect and you remember kind of where you started from and it's not a negative. It's, it's actually a positive because you got to spend a lot of time around people that love you a lot and that you love a lot and you learn different things about life. Yeah. And now as you've become a better hunter and you've expanded your, you know, your, um, opportunities for hunting by, you know, reaching out to landowners and leases and different things like that, you know, obviously now you're getting more deep into that side of, of hunting. So, which actually brings me to kind of a, a point that are or something I wanted to talk about with you is because I know that I've seen that transition with you as I've read your blogs over the years. What, and obviously this is something that any new hunter is probably struggling with is finding some place to hunt. What would you say is kind of the first steps into finding a place to hunt, whether it's public land or maybe knocking on doors, like you said? Yeah, like you said, a huge challenge for a lot of people. Um, even for experienced hunters, it still remains a challenge. Mm -hmm. Access is something that we're always dealing with. Um, so I would first and foremost say that you know, there, there are some pretty good public land hunting options out there. It's all, it varies, of course, depending on where you live. Yep. But I think public land has gotten a knock um, for being like really tough hunting. You're not going to see any deer. Um, and so it's a little bit of uh, like a boogeyman type story. Like you avoid public land because you think there's going to be 10,000 people out there and you're never going to have any luck. Well, and part but, of that, not to cut you off, but part of that too is if you're, if you're out on public land hunting and you're not having success, and you're a new hunter, maybe you're just don't, you're just not a good hunter yet. <laughs> too, right. you know? it's, yeah. It's easy it to point together. to public land being the issue. Um, but, but my, my point being that there are some pretty darn good opportunities on public land. Um, so, so don't just assume right out the gate that public land isn't going to be an option for you. Depending on the States you're in, sometimes there's amazing public land opportunities in other States where, you know, there's not quite as much public land. You might have to do a little more work to find the little hidey holes in there, but it's yeah. certainly, it's an option that you definitely should check out. Um, you can, you know, some simple tools out there nowadays that are pretty easy to access stuff like Onyx maps, um, or even just look on your state's website. They'll show you all the public land yeah. maps, where this stuff is, what the regulations are on that public land. Um, if you do a little digging around online, it's pretty easy to see where those places are, but, but Onyx is uniquely helpful because it, it can show you all the different types of property. It can show you the borders. It shows you exactly where you are. Um, I think there's a couple other apps that maybe you're doing that now too. So whatever you choose, those kind of mobile apps that show the public land borders and maps and all that detail, very helpful. It's amazing um, to, to look back at when we first even started, you know, obviously we kind of grew up in technology. So, you know, we kind of knew this was coming at some point, but it's even amazing to look back 10, 15 years and think, where we are now with technology and how to find a place to hunt or even just to research a place to hunt. You don't even have to go to that place to research. Yeah. Anymore. I mean, you literally log into Google maps or uh, pull up, you know, on X, like you said, and you can start to research, you can find the landowners names, all their information, and then you can go take a look and maybe knock on the door and say, Hey, or you can even give them a call. I mean, what, what's the best, what is the best process of doing that? Yeah, that's that's exactly what I was going to bring up next when it comes to trying to find that private land permission. Um, I do have a little bit of a system that I like to put in play. Um, and it, it's a little bit different depending on how close you live to a property or to an area. But let's say you want to try to find some permission around where you live. Mm -hmm. and you just don't know 
you know, where to, to go about it. The first thing I like to do is I, I'll look at some maps and I'll just say, okay, if I, I know I want to hunt in this general area, let's say, um, I'm going to look on Google maps or Onyx and try to find just some, some areas that look like there's some good cover that could hold deer. So some swamps or a bunch of timber or brushy country, or just something that looks, you know, like it could hold some deer and that you were not talking just wide open fields for a thousand acres. So you find some areas like that that just have a good look to them. And that's something that comes a little bit of experience knowing what to look for. But in general, find a property with, with some, some fields, maybe some timber, some swamp, some brush, some diversity in the habitat. Yeah. And they try to use a tool like Onyx or you can go and county GIS um, mm-hmm. websites are available that will also show you property border information and owners. But I'd like to try to find, you know, nine, 10, up towards maybe 15 different properties that look good to me. So I look on these maps and so I'm looking at the aerial view of an area. So I see the cover, I see the terrain, all that, Mm -hmm. but then I also see the actual property border. So I can say, okay, property X, that looks like a good one. That would be a great property hunt. And then property Y, that looks like a good one. And property Z, that looks like a good one. And then I get the owner information and the address for each one of those properties. So what I end up with is a list of maybe 10 or 15 names and addresses put that on a piece of paper. And then I just tell myself, okay, on Saturday or whatever day it's going to be or Thursday evening, I'm going to go and I'm going to knock on every single one of these doors. And for me, this, this whole list and this process is what's the most important part. It sounds pretty simple, but executing on this process is, is the magic because at least for me personally, I don't like, well, I'm kind of, I'm a little bit hermity, right? I like to work in my own yeah. office here at home. Yeah. I can be antisocial. I'm not the guy that loves talking to random people at the grocery store or something. So the idea of walking up and knocking on a random person's door, that makes me a little uncomfortable. I don't like yeah, totally. get excited about that. So for me, I have to kind of push past that to do this. So I know I need to get some new places to hunt. I just need to suck it up and bear it for a day. So I have this list. I got the addresses. I walk up to the front door, I knock on one, and that begins the momentum. And so by having a full list, by asking on that first door, if I can just do that first one, that's the very hardest. But if I get past that, the second door is easier, and the third door is easier, and the fourth and the fifth, and you get this snowball effect. And by the time you get to the 10th door, it's not a worry at all. You're moving. And and getting permission these days is a numbers game. And that's why I think having this kind of long list is really important, because you have to go into it knowing you're going to get a lot of no's. Um, so plan for that plan to have yeah. 10 options so that maybe you will get one. Yes. Out of those 10 opportunities. Um, now is there if, a right time of the year to do this process? In my mind, I think usually earlier is better. I definitely wouldn't be trying to do it, you know, right during, during hunting season yeah. um, or just before in a, in a perfect world, like a great way to do this is to go out there during shed hunting season or turkey hunting season. And so we're talking like early spring. Yep. That's, that's way, way ahead of the deer hunting season. So you're giving the landowner a lot of time. And then also you can do the, the baby step approach. So go in there and introduce yourself and then just say, Hey, I'm out here. You know, I live down the road. I've been trying to find somewhere to look for deer antlers. Um, I've noticed there's a bunch of deer out in this field. I was curious if you'd be ever okay with me taking a walk around your property to see if I could find any antlers. Um, and Perfect. ask for permission for something like that. That seems like it's a much mm-hmm. easier. Yes. It's a little bit safer for a landowner. They're not as worried about someone out there with a gun or a bow. If you can get permission to shed hunt, then you get this opportunity to get to know the landowner a little yeah. bit. You can build, build, a build, build a repertoire with them a little bit. Exactly. And then, you know, then you might be able to work your way up to deer hunting. So that's like the best scenario. Go in there, try to get shed hunting or turkey or some kind of permission like that. Um, and then build your way up to deer hunting. And, uh, that's, that's a primo way to go about it. 
Yeah. Yeah. And don't be afraid to ask them or tell them that you're, he would offer to help them out with anything they need as well. <laughs> For sure. Any, anything you can do to, to be helpful, obviously be polite, be gracious. And then, you know, I always try to offer help, offer venison, offer whatever it might be. Um, and I will add one more thing. If you get a no, one important next step I'd always recommend is ask for uh, that's, you know, so they say, no, no, thanks. We already got someone who hunts. Them. Okay. I totally understand. Um, not a problem at all. Do you happen to know anybody else in the area that you think I should ask? Or is yeah. there anybody else I should check with? Like, I can't tell you how many times that question has led me to someone who will let me hunt because then they say, let's say they, they mentioned, oh, well, you know, build on the street. Sometimes less people hunt. You could try that. So now I've got a great lead. And then when I go to Bill, I knock on his door. Now I have also got a reference point to point back to. So I'll be like, hey, Bill, I just talked to Joe. Great guy. We were having a good old time over there. He mentioned I should chat with you. And now like there's a, some connecting point. Exactly. There. Exactly. Now that's, all, that's a great tip, Mark. I, I love that, man. And that's something I, I didn't even think about that, I guess. I mean, I should think about that as a connector. You know, like that just makes total sense because now you can say, hey, so-and-so down the road just told me that, you know, you let people hunt sometimes and like, okay, it makes that connection, you know, it just makes sense. Yeah. Anything you can do to just make someone feel a little more comfortable or to think that you've got some connection to the area. Like if you live in the area or if you live nearby, I would always mention, Hey, I live just down the road or, Hey, I live on, you know, Jones road or, Hey, my grandma and grandpa live in town here. Um, whatever it is, like if there's anything you can do like that, that's a helping point too, I think. Yeah. So now you, maybe you get access to a few of these properties, kind of what's your next step then? Are you, are you just jumping on these properties looking for sheds or, or are you like while you're shed hunting, are you kind of doing more research as you're out there? Yeah. So, you know, it depends on the time of year, but let's say it is during that shed season. Let's say, let's say it's right now it's March. Mm-hmm. I got permission. Um, probably the first thing I'm doing even before knocking on that door would be looking at those maps. Um, but now I get permission. Now I'm going to do like a deep dive on the map. So really thoroughly look at my aerial maps to try to think through and try to do some digital scouting. Um, and there's, there's a whole lot we could talk about when it comes to, you know, digital scouting, looking at maps and discerning things from terrain and cover features and things like that, Mm -hmm. that maybe too deep for right now, but there's certain things you can look at in these maps to, you know, Spots that you think might be food sources, spots that you think might be bedding areas, spots that you think might be travel corridors or little pinch points that are going to funnel deer movement through. Um, so what I try to do is I look at my maps and I identify a handful of these hot spots, areas that I think are be pretty good. And I've got that either marked as waypoints on my GPS or my phone um, or maybe mark it on a physical map if I have one. And then I'm going to go out there during shed hunting season or my scouting trip, whatever it is I'm doing. And I want to go kind of ground truth that. So I'm mm-hmm. going to go to those hot spots and say, okay, does it look as good on the ground as I thought it would on the maps? And that's going to help focus my scouting. If it's a small property and I'm able to walk every square inch, I'll do that just because, you know, that yeah, first time you want to kind of try to figure it out. But if it's a really large area that that's just not possible, then having this focused approach, hitting those hot spots first and trying to, you know, check the edges, check the travel corridors, trying to figure out some basic building blocks of the property. That's the way I would start. And just the more scouting you can do, the, the more helpful it is. Um, of course, your, your proximity to a property can, can influence how often you can do that. So you might need to do more digital scouting and less in-person time. If this property is 10 hours away somewhere, you're just going to try hunting for a, a trip one time. Yep. Um, but yeah, it, it begins with that spring scouting, 
scouring the maps and then I'm going to come back in the summer hopefully and then at that point you're able to put some trail cameras up maybe start to see what's in the area how deer are using these spots um, and then you kind of work your way in towards hunting season. Cool. Cool. No, that's, that's excellent information, man. Now we talked a little, or we mentioned a little bit of shed hunting and I have to, I need to cover that a little bit because new hunters might not even understand what the heck shed hunting is. You know, it's, it's kind of one of those things that's become pretty popular the last few years, but, uh, I still have people ask you shed hunting. Why why do you do that? You know, why, why even go shed hunting? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I ask myself that question many times too, (laughs) after long days finding nothing. Um, but yeah, deer lose their antlers every winter. And so if you enjoy being out in the woods, if you enjoy deer, um, it's a fun thing to do to get out there and try to find antlers. It's kind of like a, an Easter egg hunt for, for adults. And um, <laughs> it, it, not only can it be fun and a great excuse to go out there and stretch your legs and get some fresh air, but you can learn something too while you're doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you find sheds, it helps you understand what deer are still alive and in the area. Um, it can help you better understand a little bit about where some of these bucks might be spending time or where they're bedded. Um, so yeah, it's a helpful thing, but, but mostly I do it just cause it's fun. Like I, yeah, I love, yeah. I love getting out there and the, it can be frustrating cause it, it's a lot of walking and not a whole lot of finding most of the time, especially depending on where you're going. Um, but when you finally see those white tines, you know, sticking out of the grass, that, that rush is really awesome. And then makes it all worth it. (laughs) Yeah, it really does. And there's just something really, something really unique and kind of powerful about holding an antler. Like there's no other, there's nothing else that I can think of in the world where you can have this, this wild animal out there that you've watched maybe. You know, you can see this wild animal out there. It's it's so majestic and so just incredible, right? I think a lot of us are fascinated with wild animals. There's very few animals out there where you can actually, at some point, then hold a part of that animal at some point down the line. And and that deer or that animal is still alive. Like, that is a really unique thing to be able to say, hey, this is a part of that animal I was watching last fall. And it was so cool watching the animal. And now I have a little part of that of my own that I can touch and feel and look at and think about. And he's still running around out there and I might still see that animal again. Um, it's just a unique thing. And, and I love that little connection you can have to, to the wildlife through, you know, holding a shed and having that. I've been watching your uh, Instagram stories and you kind of do your shed stories thing. And I really like that. And it kind of, it kind of points to that, you know, like you have these stories and you remember these exact sheds that you've, I mean, even sheds of deer that you didn't necessarily kill, you know, you have stories and you remember watching them year after year. And then you remember the year that you didn't see that deer anymore. And then maybe the neighbor shot it or somebody down the road shot it or whatever, but you still have those memories and those stories. And you're like, Hey, I got the shed still. It's right here. (laughs) Kind of like a a little bit of a talisman, almost like a physical representation of, of, of memories and of an experience. And um, yeah. And then just, they're cool. <laughs> They're just yeah. cool. Just holding an antler. I mean, if you, anyone who's held an antler and got to touch it and feel it and spin around their hands and kind of run your fingers along the tines and look at the burr and, and touch the little bumps along mm-hmm. the bottom. I mean, it's just a cool object that yeah. uh, fascinates a lot of us. So what, so say somebody wants to get started as a shed hunter. I'm not, I haven't hugely been into shed hunting to be honest, cause I haven't had my own real property over the, you know, until about the last couple of years. So I'm starting to get into this myself. So this will really help me out. Where do I start? I mean, it's obvious, you know, you kind of mentioned food sources and some bedding areas uh, before. Is that where you want to start? Or you just start walking around and, and going back and forth? I mean, you know, kind of where, where's that starting point? 
Yeah. So, so when I first started shed hunting, I took the cover every square inch approach. Mm -hmm. And I remember I had access to a 90 or 80, I don't know, hundred acres, something, something, somewhere like 80 to hundred acre, acre farm. Yep. And I thought, okay, I'm going to walk every little bit of it. So I just started walking down one edge and then I'd turn back and I walk the other way and I'd grid search the whole thing. Walking through like a 50 acre cut cornfield. I did that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it was a huge waste of time in general. Yeah. So over the years, I've slowly moved further and further away from that to a much more strategic way of shed hunting, a much more efficient way of shed hunting. And so what I would recommend to folks, what I've found over the years is that the vast majority of antlers are found in certain places. They're not, they're not scattered evenly across the property. They're mm -hmm. not scattered randomly across the property. There's certain core regions within an area or a given property where you're going to find higher concentrations of antlers because those are the places that deer, specifically bucks, spend more time in the late winter. That's what you need to find is where are bucks in January, February, March. And that's going to be where you find these antlers. So those places, 90% of the time, 80% of the time are the best winter food source and the nearest bedding area close to that best winter food source. So you have to do a little bit of detective work. You got to figure out, okay, what's the best food source right now? Mm -hmm. doesn't matter what the best food source was in July. It matters what are they eating right now? So maybe you know that. Maybe you just know, hey, there's a standing soybean field over here. Deer are hammering it. So you just know, okay, that's where they're feeding. Or maybe you need to go do some detective work and go and check every field or go check in the clear cuts in the woods and find like, where are the most droppings, where are the most fresh tracks, um, see where the sign tells you the most time is being spent. And so once I identify a couple of those very best food sources, I'm now checking all the edges around the food source. If there's any, you know, if we use the example of a soybean field, mm -hmm. which is something that's across large parts of the country, um, any grassy swaths along the field or that cut into the field or any hillsides near that field, anything that is adjacent to the food I'm checking and then bedding. So where deer lay down during the day and spend many, many hours of their day, that's another key spot where these bucks are going to drop their antlers. So bedding areas can, can come in a lot of different forms depending on where you live and where you hunt. Um, but usually it's thick cover of some kind and they want to be pretty close to that food source this time of year because in the winter, these deer want to expend as little energy as possible. So the shortest distance they have to travel from bedding to feeding, they, they want to find those spots. That makes sense. Um, so there's this thing, and you maybe, you've probably heard of this, Colin, maybe because of, I think, some of the people you follow in the business world and entrepreneur mm -hmm. world, but there's something called the 80-20 rule. Yep. And basically... The 80-20 rule can be applied to a lot of different topics, but it basically says that 80% of an outcome usually results from 20% of the input. Um, so, you know. The per, uh, Pareto principle, I yes, believe. Yes, the Pareto correct. principle is like the official, the official, yeah. um, it was a, the psychologist who came up with this. That's but right. You can, you can apply this to shed hunting because I think that in most cases, 80% of the sheds you're going to find in a given area, they're usually found in about that, that core 20%. So back in the day, I used to spend all my time spread across the entire property while only 20% of that property really had a high percentage chance for there to be shed. So that other 80% of the time was, was kind of wasted. Yeah. Every once in a while, you'll find a random shed. Sheds do drop, you know, in between places sometimes, yeah. but low odds. What I try to do now is I try to spend, I try to flip that rule. And so I, I know that about 20% of this property is that prime area. 
I want to spend 80% of my time in that top 20%. So I get really, really strategic. I, I'm going to hop from hotspot to hotspot. So I'm going to locate that best winter food source. I'm going to scour it. I'm going to locate that best bedding close to the winter food source. I'm going to scour it. Like really take my yep. time in there, go slow, be very focused, searching around every down tree, taking time to use my binoculars and scan in the distance, scan close to me. Make sure I try to look from different perspectives. So as I'm walking through a bedding area, maybe I'm not going to just look ahead of me. I'm going to stop. And I'm going to turn in a circle slowly and look all around me. I might stand on top of a log so I get a different height perspective. I might crouch down so I can see down and see different perspective there. Um, because I'm focusing most of my time on a smaller area, I have the time to be really detail oriented like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and then I'll speed my way through the stuff that is like just transitions. Um, and yeah, you might find one every once in a while in those connecting points, but I'd really rather be much more focused on the hot spots. And I've, I've become much more successful as a shed hunter because of that. That's cool, man. And I just, I saw that you've been shed hunting the last few days. It looks like things are picking up for you because you found your first shed of the season. Yeah, a little bit. I've been um, hearing, you know, another big part of shed hunting does depend on location in general. You know, if you're in an area with a lot of bucks, you're going to have a much better chance of finding antlers. If you're in an area where there's not many, it's just tough sled. So here in Michigan, um, at this point in the year, there's, you know, I'll, there might be 50 does and four bucks or three bucks. Yeah. Um, so I usually find just a couple sheds a year in Michigan, even though I put a lot of time into it, but then you can go somewhere like Iowa or Ohio or Montana and I'll find 20 sheds in a day in some mm -hmm. places like that. Um, so there is set, there's something to be said about the, you know, what the actual region's like. So I'm, I'm going to those three states I just mentioned here in the next yep. three weeks and, and that ought to pick things up. Cool. Are, are, how much time are you going to spend on each location? I guess, do you have leases? Are you just, are, are these knocked on door uh, spots that you've, you've uh, attained over the years? So in Ohio, it's, there's a spot that used to be a lease of mine. I, I lost the lease. They're, they're going to sell the property, but I can still go out there um, as of now. And we're going to take down our tree stands and, and yep. do some walking. I've got permission on some neighbors around there to do some shed hunting, just from knocking on doors. So we're going to do that. Um, so we're going to do like a long weekend in Ohio. Um, in Iowa, I've got a couple spots I've knocked on doors in past years and got permission. So I'm going to shed hunt those spots. And then I've got some friends that have access to other places. We'll hit those and I'm going to spend probably three, four days up there. And then in Montana, probably going to spend a week and yeah. that's going to be mostly public land actually. Yeah. Uh, a lot of public land access out there, but then also a couple spots I've knocked on ranch ranches next to some public and gotten permission on some of those spots too. Cool. Uh, so I'll spend a bunch of time out there. Heck yeah. That's awesome, man. So when you're out there shed hunting, are you also like doing a lot of scouting, like as far as sign and different things like that? I mean, obviously these are properties you probably have already hunted a little bit, but are, are you still finding other things that you maybe didn't notice before? So I actually try not to do too much of that unless okay. you have to. Mm -hmm. So the reason being that it's really hard, you, you kind of got to choose one or the other to, to be really great at either one, because yep. if you're I used to do that. I used to go out shed hunting. I'm like, I want to find sheds. But then at the same time, you're, you're curious about all this kind of stuff and you're looking at rubs and you're looking at possible tree stand locations. You're doing all this kind of stuff. And, and probably one of the very most important things you got to remember about shed hunting is that sheds are always on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or occasionally there's the very rare one that might be stuck in a bush or something, but you're not going to find a shed up in a tree or hundred yards down the line at, at, at your head height. So you, you gotta stay focused, looking at your feet, looking at the ground. You can look ahead of you on the ground, but you gotta be focused on that because you could just, I mean, sometimes 
you spot a shed by simply seeing like an inch of tine sticking over a leaf. And just that little glimpse flash of white is what caught your eye. Yeah. If you're not like tuned into that level of detail the whole time, you can very easily go from finding 10 sheds to finding zero. Um, so I, if possible, I try to be 100% focused on shed hunting. And then hopefully if it's close enough or if I have time, then I'll go back out other periods of time and yeah. I'm hundred percent focused on scouting. I'm trying to look for all these other things. Um, is that typically don't have the luxury to do that, but yeah. Yeah. Is that typically like early summer then midsummer, then you, you get into kind of scouting mode more then. So I, I would like to do it still early in the spring, at least once because you can see a lot of stuff before all the new plant growth yep. that you can't see once the summer comes around, you know, once it hits June, July, August, in the most parts of the country, it's so thick with new growth. You just oh, can't yeah. see anything that was in the dirt before. So so really like March and April are really, really good times across most of the country to do some initial scouting because you can still see trails that might have been made back in October or November. You can still see scrapes from October or November. You can still see the rubs and know if they're fresh from last year. Um, so it's a really good time to do that initial scouting effort. And then in the summer, I'll, I'll usually come back in the summer and that's when I might be hanging tree stands, hanging trail cameras, trimming out an access path to a stand, trimming out shooting lanes around a tree stand, that kind of work. But I'd, I'd like to learn the property before all the new growth, if, if it's possible. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Now you, you kind of mentioned, uh, trail cameras. Are you do putting up a lot of trail cameras in that time then? Like how many trail cameras per property would you use? You know, it obviously depends. Um, I, I, I do like to use cameras. Um, I use them probably more now as uh, kind of just of a way to see what's out there. I don't base too much of my hunting strategy off of cameras. Not to say I don't, but yeah. not, not a ton. But yeah, I like to get cameras out during the summer to see like what's around. Um, what kind of age class of bucks is around, what kind of quality of deer is around here. Um, if, you know, for me, because I've been, you know, hunting a long time now and I'm, I'm at a point kind of in my hunting journey that I'm interested in just targeting mature bucks, yep. I want to know, you know, are there mature bucks around here? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, if it's, uh, I don't know, most, I don't really have access to many properties larger than a hundred acres. Um, I had access past year to one that was much bigger than that, but I was sharing it with some people. So we had a bunch of cameras shared between us. Um, but on the places that are usually just me, you know, a 40 acre farm or a 90 acre farm, um, anywhere from, you know, three to six cameras, maybe I'll try to run in a place like that to try to cover some popular entry and exit points in and out of cover or on the edge of food sources. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, again, because I don't have, you know, I don't have 5,000 acres to try to cover. Sometimes guys that have that will only put one camera per 100 acres because they want to spread it out over 5,000 acres. But because I'm working with, well, I got one 50 acre farm. I really want to know what's happening there. So I'll still put the four or five cameras, even in a small area like that. That's a, uh, that's a good point though, because it, it really shows like you've had a lot of success the last few years. I've obviously paid attention to what you've been doing with your stuff and, and, uh, you've killed some nice deer and you're doing this on properties that are, I think, what was it? Public land in Montana. I think you killed one buck. And yep. then, and then the last couple of years have been, you know, like you said, properties that are not big properties. I mean, they're just 40 acre type farms yep. and you don't have to have a huge, you know, land access to kill a nice deer. If you're, if you're looking for a nice deer, even just to kill a deer, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. There's, there's definitely opportunity out there and, and you can, you know, it, 
everything's different depending where you're at, but there are definitely opportunities to kill mature deer on small properties. You got to, you know, you have to hunt it differently. You got to be careful. You got to be pretty strategic if you're trying to kill a mature buck in these kinds of scenarios, but it's, it's, it's definitely possible. And it's a whole heck of a lot of fun to try. Um, so, so yeah, you know, it's worked out all right for me here lately. I've definitely been learning a lot and, and cameras certainly help you do that, but there's a lot of the scouting that plays into that. There's a lot of, um, you know, probably the, one of the, the biggest things that was a, a light switch moment for me when it came to hunting. Um, we, we talked about things that I'd learned when I was a kid and things I wish I'd done differently. Um, when I made the switch from wanting to just kill any deer, it was hard to kill any deer for a while there. I finally figured that out. Yeah. Eventually it was, okay, now how do I kill a, a mature buck? And so at first it was like in Michigan, kind of like a three-year-old buck or older is, is like a top 10%, yeah. top 5% buck. So that's like kind of that threshold like when it gets pretty darn tough. So when I started trying to do that, the biggest thing, the biggest change I made was just um, thinking about how you are pressuring and impacting deer with your behavior. So I used to think like, I used to think, okay, if I just work hard enough, if I put in enough time, if I hunt enough hours, I'll be able to kill a big mature buck. I'm just mm-hmm. going to do like the, the brute force approach was what I tried to do in those early years. So I would hunt every day after work and hunt every weekend. I'd be out there every morning. I'd go, 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 go. Spent tons of time in the woods and I you know, did not have much success. Yeah. It wasn't until I started realizing every time you go out there, you are negatively impacting your future chances because you're going to leave scent out there when you walk through. You potentially might spook deer when you walk in or when you walk out or while you're sitting in the tree, your wind's blowing somewhere, deer might be smelling you then. So every time you go into those woods, into this property that you might be hunting, deer are learning about what you're doing. And as deer learn that there's someone in there hunting them, it's going to change their behavior eventually. It might not change their behavior today, but maybe tomorrow, the next day, or after five times in or 10 times in whatever it is. Um, and mature bucks are the, the quickest to react, react. So what I found is that instead of hunting, let's say 20 days, every single day I could hunt, I would rather just pick the right four days of those 20 and be really strategic about picking the right four days and doing it with the right conditions and the white, the right wind direction and being really careful about how I got in there and how I got out. Um, if I did that and became really selective about those things, my success and my observations of mature bucks and my encounters that skyrocketed. That was the biggest change. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. It's kind of, it was kind of the same for me the last few years as I've really focused on those kinds of things as well. Not necessarily spending so much time, but spending quality time and understanding that those deer are hunting you just as much as you're hunting them in a sense, you know, it's like, they know you're there, you know, they, they have that instinct and, uh, you know, obviously you're, and we're leaving scent and we're, you know, we're, we're doing all those things. And, uh, you know, my success has went up now the last couple of years as well as I've focused in on just having more quality time. So yeah, I, I, think I, that's, I would agree. Makes a big, big difference. Yeah, man. Well, I have a couple questions that are kind of personal questions that I wanted to ask you about, you know, they're not necessarily, uh, they're hunting related, but you know, you, you've kind of, you've had a child the last couple of years and you've kind of, you know, talked about that through your blog and through your adventures and your journey and different things like that. So how has life as a family man being married and having a child changed your deer hunting? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the, the single greatest change of my entire life, no doubt about that. Um, but the best thing that ever happened in my entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've got a 13, almost a 14 month old son. Um, 
And this is my first, this past year, the, the fall of 2018 was my first hunting season with it, with a child. And so, yeah, you know, it, it definitely changed how I'm thinking about my time away from home. Um, how I need to become a little more efficient about my trips, more efficient mm-hmm. about all the other things I'm doing throughout the year, the scouting, the habitat work, the tree stand prep, the, you know, everything that goes into it, you know, I'm doing something usually all throughout the year. Now I'm just trying to find ways like how do I balance this with my family obligations? How do I, you know, minimize my time away? How do I minimize the impact on my wife who's left home alone taking yeah, care yeah. of our son? Um, so yeah, that, that all changes things. And I got to tell you, you know, over, you know, recent years, I've got a lot of friends that have been having children mm-hmm. and they're always telling me like, we've been on hunting trips together and it's like day one or two. And they're telling me, Oh my gosh, I miss, I miss my daughter so much. <laughs> I miss her so much. And in my head, I'm thinking, oh, okay, sure. I get it. But come on, man, like focus on the hunt. Like <laughs> you can survive without your kid for six days or 10 days or whatever. I never really got it. Like I, yeah. I, I intellectually got it, but I did not emotionally get it. Now that I have a son, Mm-hmm. All of a sudden I'm gone those first, like that first day you're driving away or like just leaving home. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, like this is a very different feeling walking away from my, my little baby boy yeah. um, than it was before. Yeah. So, so yeah, very different, but it's also um, really, really exciting to be able to share some of these things with him. Yeah. You know, like one of my favorite things already is he's into watching we call we're gonna watch bucks we're gonna watch bucks buddy yep. so he gets really excited but putting the bucks on tv and he points at them all and he, he doesn't really say buck he, for he, he's kind of regressed he, he used to say buh. <laughs> he was saying buh really good he pointed a buck and say buh but now he says duh so i don't know what's going on <laughs> so now it's everything's duh but we walk around the, like my man cave and we pointed all the buck all the shoulder mounts he says duh 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 and then we watch youtube videos of deer and he gets really excited about that and now just recently i've been busting out the turkey videos and i've now got to the point where i can say what's what's the turkey say and he'll say so kind of kind of make a little bit of a turkey yelp um so those things are what are what are exciting me the most now and and i can't wait to you know start taking him out into the field with me more i've taken him out on some shed hunting Mm -hmm. walkabouts and some scouting trips and and last spring i took him out behind the house there was a turkey gobbling and i tried to call the turkey into the yard um while he was with me so little things like that are uh are becoming really exciting and uh, i'm sure it's only going to get better that's awesome. That's awesome to hear that because I, I kind of went through the same process as you over the last couple of years as I have, I have two daughters. So it's kind of the same thing. I, I, I can totally feel the same thing that you're feeling. And, and yeah. uh, it's like, I, you know, I go to the hunting lease now and I'm only there for a couple of days, but it's like, I'm there like usually Thursday, Friday, and then Saturday I'll come home Saturday night so I can make it back home for church on Sunday morning. And it's like, even on that Saturday, I'm in that stand for the evening sit and I'm like, man, I, I can't wait to get home. You know, it's, it's, it, I, I love being out hunting and I love spending that time out there, but it's also like, man, you just, it's something you don't really understand until you're there until you're, yeah. that, you know? So definitely, definitely. That's, that's cool, man. Another question that I had for you, cause I know you're a big book reader. What is your top hunting related book and your top non hunting related book and why? Mm, man. Yeah. It's tough to me for me to make a decision. Cause yes, I'm a huge, <laughs> I'm a total book nerd. My, uh, to my wife's chagrin and she, she likes reading quite a bit too. She's mm-hmm. into it, but I like it so much. Like my favorite thing to do on a Friday night would be let's go get dinner and then go to the bookstore for four hours. Like I just yeah. love books. I've got bookshelves all over the place. So my favorite hunting related book, um, 
uh, bunch of great options. I'm going to point you towards one book that is a collection of essays that was a great, um, when I got to the point when I wanted to start thinking about hunting in a way, not just about hunting, like how do I kill a deer? But when I got to the point where I wanted to start thinking about, start thinking about how to articulate why a hunt or why does the how of hunting matter? Um, those deeper questions that I think a lot of us eventually get to, um, as a hunter, um, the well, best, I, I would say even some of these new hunters are really thinking about that before they start hunting. And that's, that's why, a great point. That's why they're getting into hunting. Now, you know, you see the, 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 the clean meat movement, the locavore yeah. movement, different things. I know you're very connected with that. So that's, yeah, yeah it's a good point. Yeah. And, and you make a really good point for some, like for me, I grew up hunting without even thinking about it. It was just what yeah. you did. Um, so I never had to think about these questions until later in my life. And I was, I had to start saying, okay, why do I do what I do? Or how can I justify mm-hmm. what I do? Or how do I talk about what I do with other people and try to help them understand it? Yeah. Um, so a book that has really helped me do that is a book called A Hunter's Heart. Um, and it's a collection of essays edited by a guy named David Peterson, who's a great writer on uh, his own. And this book is, it has got essays all related to hunting in one way or another from a series of, of really great writers and really great thinkers um, approaching hunting from all sorts of different angles. And a lot of these essays, you know, just force you to really think about stuff, uh, present different situations um, that, you know, I think this is a great book for non-hunters to read to help understand yeah. why we do what we do. I think it's a great book for new hunters to read to, to kind of help wrestle with some of these tough issues because I don't think there's any I don't think there's any kind of other pursuit out there in the world today that is more rife with complications and questions and and seriousness than hunting right I mean we are Mm -hmm. the the essence of hunting is taking a life and there's nothing more serious than that out there Um, so that's why I think this book is so important because I really think it helps it's helped me and I think can help other people to to start processing some of those questions and it's cool. uh, it's beautifully written too. So it's, it's an interesting read. It's, it's a beautiful read. Um, and it's called the hunter's heart. I'll check that out and I'll make sure I link that up too. When I put the show notes out there, man, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Now you want a non hunting book. I need a non hunting book because you're, you're, you're always throwing books out there on Instagram and, and I know you read some really good books. So, oh man. So, okay. You got to help me narrow it down a little bit. Um, <laughs> Do you want something that's still like outdoors focused or do you want something that's like completely off no, the wall? Some, something that, yeah. Something off the wall that's inspired you, like whether it's business or maybe family life or maybe in your marriage, whatever, whatever, man. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm looking at the bookshelf yeah, right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> give me, give me two seconds here to try and narrow it down. I'll, I'll, while I'm thinking, I will tell you I'm reading, um, you know, I've read a good book. Here's a, here's, um, this isn't like my necessary top book of all time, but it's, it's a good two book series that I just read, um, for related to the outdoors. It's a little bit inspiring for folks. Um, it's a book called Indian Creek. Um, and it's about a young guy who moved from Wisconsin to Montana to go to school at, I think it was Montana state. And he got a job offer to go into the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness, which is on the, the border of Idaho and Montana and live way back in the wilderness for seven months all by himself and babysit some, gosh, I think it was trout eggs. I can't remember which fish it was now. Um, cause this is, the, this is the first book. I read this first book like 
I don't know, seven, eight years ago. Yep. But the, the first book is about his seven months living by himself as a 20 month or as a 20 year old for seven months in the wilderness. Um, how he dealt with that, what he was thinking about that whole experience. So that's the first book. And then cool. now 45 years later, he wrote a follow-up book as uh, as a 65 year old or whatever it was um, that he is now. And that book is called, um, Oh gosh, what the heck is the book called? The Name of the Stars. And in that book, it kind of walks through the rest of his life. Um, and then the main essence of the story, though, is he actually goes back to a similar scenario. This time he's in the Bob Marshall Wilderness in Montana. And he's babysitting grayling eggs, which is another type of fish. And so he kind of had this interesting um, book kind of uh what do you call it? Uh, I'm blanking on the word I'm trying to say here, but early on in his life, he had this similar thing where he had to live in the wilderness for a long period of time. And now as an old man at the end of his life, he got an opportunity to go do the same thing. And with a mm-hmm. second book, now he reflects back on this life of loving the wilderness and of experiencing all these things. And now as a father too, what that has meant to his life and how these things have all kind of intersected, made him who he is and made him, um, you know, the father that he is. And so a really interesting two books to examine kind of a person's interaction with the wild as a young person and as a, as a, as an older person. Um, and I really enjoyed those. Those are two books I'd recommend that. Those sound um, awesome. <laughs> Good suggestion. No, I'm yeah. going to check those out now too. Cause I'm a, I'm a big book reader myself. So I always try yeah, to ha- like hammer through some new books. So man, I appreciate those uh, suggestions. All right. Yeah, my, no problem. My uh, my other personal last question that I wanted to ask is because I know you've interviewed and you've done blogs and you've had been connected with some of the best top deer hunters out there, and I think this would be something for that would help people you know look deeper into their you know as they become you know more initiated into their deer hunting. If you could only learn from three deer hunters in the world moving forward, who would you choose? Oh man. That that's a, that's another tough, tough one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'm thinking about who I'd want to, like, if I could pick like my three hunting mentors for the rest of my life, um, I'm perpetually fascinated with what is going on in Mark Drury's mind. So I'd love to keep Mark Drury as a mentor of sorts. Um, the level of detail and analysis that he looks at everything with. Um, is is really interesting and fascinating. He's been able to uncover a lot of things just by being very aware of why deer do what they do. Yeah. So that's one person. Cool. Um, I think another guy who has, um, you know, who's shown to be, and I already mentioned him as someone who's been very influential on my hunting success. That was John Eberhardt. He's a guy who. Mm-hmm who found a lot of success in a state like I live in, in Michigan, where there's tons of hunters. It's, it's very different hunting in Southern Michigan compared to central Iowa or something like yeah, that yeah. or Southern Iowa. Um, you know, in Michigan, there's, I think 5.5, 5, uh, bow hunters per square mile versus in Iowa, there's less than one bow hunter per square mile. Yeah. Um, there's 311,000 bow hunters in Michigan compared to 59,000 bow hunters in Iowa. So when you have that kind of difference in, hunting competition out there, it just changes how deer act and how you hunt by just a huge, a huge amount. So for that reason, I would want to keep John Eberhardt in my back pocket as someone to keep <laughs> me, keep me up on how to approach those kinds of scenarios. Yeah. Um, cool. and I guess my third mentor, um, 
I would grab my buddy Steve Ranella because yeah. while he's not a, a whitetail, um, he's not a whitetail specialist of any kind. As far as generalist hunting, as far as someone who really has chased a whole lot of critters all over the place, knows a good amount about everything and mm-hmm. um, just a great amount about you know how to conduct yourself in the wilderness and in some wild places and how to how to hunt just about anything and, and, and break it down and make some great food out of it. Um, Steve would be hard to beat for a mentor on that topic. So I think yeah. those would be my, that would be my three, my three group. Well, you'd learn how to hunt and you'd, you'd stay up on your, uh, on, on your hunting know-how from the first two guys. And then all of a sudden you pull out Steve in the back pocket there and he's, he's cooking it up, making things you'd never even heard of. <laughs> yep, yep. I think that, uh, I think I'd be in good hands with that group. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Well, I have one final question that I ask all of the people I interview, and uh, that question is, why do you hunt? Yeah, it's a great question. Something I thought about a lot, and it's it's definitely one of those things that's hard to put words to, you know? Um, So I think a lot of us hunters struggle with it. Um, I, I can offer a whole bunch of different things that would go way too long, but I'll try to summarize a few of the reasons that I hunt. Um, you know, part of why I hunt is, you know, the food acquisition aspect of it. I, I, I don't buy any red meat for my home anymore. We live just off of venison and another game that I kill. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a huge part of it. And I, 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 I personally can't justify taking a life unless I'm going to eat that animal. So that's yeah. a huge part of what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also hunt because, you know, I, I do enjoy that experience. I really enjoy that experience. I, I, I love, wildlife and learning about wildlife and putting myself into their world and you know, becoming a part of it. I think, you know, I like to do a lot of other things outside. I like to hike. I like to backpack. I like to kayak. I like to, you know, do all those things. But when I'm out hiking, I'm just passing through a piece of woods. I'm just walking across the mountain and I'm looking at things. Um, but I'm, I'm just moving through that landscape. When I hunt, when I, I could enter that very same place, but if I'm carrying my bow and I'm hunting, it's a completely different experience. I'm, I'm, I'm not moving through it. I'm a part of it. I become a part of that, that cog. It's a cog in the wheel. I'm, I'm yeah. part of that ecosystem. I'm now part of the, the, the food chain. Everything is different. The volume is turned up to 11. Your senses are spiked. You are paying attention to all these different details that you never would when you're just hiking through or when you're just looking for birds or whatever it is you might do. Mm-hmm. So that, that engagement with the, with a place with an animal is just forever um, fascinating to me. And it just, it keeps me awake at night. I get so excited thinking about these things, trying to understand these animals, trying to learn about these places and and the hows and the whys of what they do and everything that goes into hunting an animal, that process just absolutely gets me. Mm. So, um, you know, I think there's a whole lot of benefits to hunting um, that are great, you know, by hunting, we are contributing funds to conservation. By hunting, we help, you know, we are, we are part of the management process in a lot of these places and all that, that's all well and good. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but why I hunt really personally, it's, it's to acquire food and it's to have that deep engagement with the natural world that, that makes me closer to these places and animals. Mm, that's good, man. That's, that's really good. I appreciate that. Thank you for, uh, thank you for explaining that. Cause that's, that's deep and I like it. Hey, I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to share it and to talk about this stuff. It's, it's fun. Yeah, it is. It's a lot of fun. It's, it's, you know, it's really important that we talk about these things too. I think where, where can, where can people find you Mark online? 
Yeah, well, uh, I produce a weekly podcast. The Wired Hunt podcast is is the biggest thing I still do. So you can find that on any podcast app you like, you know, the iTunes, uh, the, the Apple Podcast Player, Spotify, anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also, you do the occasional blog post still. I write a column over at the meateater.com website. So you can see yep. that there. And then, you know, across social media, you'll be able to find me on Instagram, Facebook, uh, YouTube for videos, um, Twitter. And mostly you're going to find that under the wired to hunt name. Um, Instagram's probably where I'm the most active. Like you mentioned, I do uh, daily Instagram stories and a lot of different posts and and kind of original content there. So that's a good place to keep up on on what's going on. Well, and I I want to say that I really enjoy that uh, all these years that you've been very real and raw about your content. You've shared the, uh, not just the highs, but you've always shared the lows and I've always appreciated that. And I think that's really important. And, as we uh, continue forward and hunting becomes a hot, even more hot topic than it already is, I think it's really important that we show both sides to uh, to our hunts, not just uh, not just the uh, the kill at the end, but the journey that that got us there and, and everything in between. So I've appreciated that you're that way, and and I can see why uh, Steve and, and the Mediator team has uh, brought you on board with what they're doing. So yeah, appreciate you saying that, Colin. It's uh, you know, it's been a, a lot of fun over these years to get to kind of share my story. Like you said, I've shared the highs and the lows. There's been plenty of lows. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> we've learned once. from that. I've learned yeah, from that. You know? Exactly. We we've all learned from that. And um I'm uh, I'm certainly thankful I get the opportunity to do that. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your time today. Thanks for seriously, thanks. I, I haven't put any podcasts out there for about two years. So I appreciate you even just answering me back and taking time to uh, come on here and, uh, and, you know, share your wealth of information. So thank you. Yeah, hey, you're welcome. I'm happy to do it. And uh, I'm sure that you're going to be getting some cool stuff coming up here with the, with the new podcast and everything. So I'm sure people are, will have lots to look forward to as well. I hope you enjoyed the conversation this week with Mark. Be sure to follow Mark on social media and let him know you appreciate the information he shared here on the podcast episode. I also want to mention, to find all the topics, quotes, and important links we talked about in today's episode, you can find the show notes at www.activatethehunt.com forward slash 009. Finally, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on whatever app you're listening from. And I would also appreciate it if you would leave me a rating and review if you're listening on iTunes. This will help others that are looking for hunting information find this podcast. We will be back next week with a new interview. Have a great week, everyone. Thank you for listening to Activate the Hunt podcast. For additional information about this podcast, the show notes, hunting articles, and more, visit www.activatethehunt.com.